all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. I would venture to say that there are probably more than six Sarahs. <laughs> and that's okay. That's great. We're all are welcome here. We're so glad you're here, whatever your name is. Um, but I will say that, you know, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is the idea of finding confidence in our food choices and letting go of the ideas of dogma and really focusing on health and nutritional needs. And one of the areas that we haven't dove into recently, but we used to talk a lot about because we were moms. I mean, we still are, but we have teens now is being pregnant or breastfeeding. And just to kind of put it out there for our listeners that might not know this, I breastfed all three of my children um, for basically a decade as I was either nursing or pregnant. And then I also worked as a LaLeche League leader and um, helped a lot of moms. And so it was a huge part of my life for a really long time. But then as your kids get older and, you know, I no longer am, am part of that, it's like it's like this community that I've left behind, but I still have such like compassion for, I don't know if that's the right word. You know, I just, I just, there's something so special about like those experiences that you made when you were younger and, and you kind of like look back at them with nostalgia. That's how I'm looking at this question. I'm, I'm excited to tackle it. <laughs> I, I also think that part of, for me, this question reflects that early experiences as a parent where you just really feel like you jumped in the deep end and you do not know if you are doing things right. And there's a lot of, I think, um, doubt and um, questioning that happens. And I feel like Sarah's, Sarah's question sort of reflects just that that period of time where you're you're just not sure if you're doing things right. And for her, it's sort of manifesting as um, not feeling confident necessarily in her food choices, along with going through some some health challenges that are definitely complicating things. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, I wish that I had really understood as a early mom trying to, you know, figure things out was how much, you know, like you're doing the best you can with the information you have at the time. And I think it's so easy to kind of fall into that mommy guilt trap, um, especially with the overwhelm of those first few months and years. And so I want to just, you know, give Sarah a big hug as we kind of dive into a lot of the more technical aspects of her question and just say, like, Sarah, you got this. You got this. You're a great mom. You've got this. You're doing a great job. I love that you said you do the best that you can. Um with the knowledge that you have until you can do better. Cause I think that does not apply to just those early days. <laughs> that's say, true. As the mom of a teenager, that's something I've been kind of wrestling with myself lately. So uh, before I get off on a tangent on that, maybe let's dive into Sarah's question. Sarah wrote, 
I want to know how I can safely do the autoimmune protocol if I'm breastfeeding and also don't want to lose weight. It seems like every time I go even a bit lower carb at all, I lose weight that I don't have to lose. My nausea gets worse and I feel like I'm starving to death no matter how much meat, fruit, and vegetables I eat. I eat a ton of nuts and avocado to try to keep the calories up, but it isn't always enough. I have a harder time falling asleep and wake up hungry in the night and can't fall asleep without eating something. It makes it feel impossible to make changes. I don't know what to eat, and it's really stressful. My heart is so pulling for Sarah. Um, And I also just want to kind of reiterate a few points that she mentioned that, you know, we're going to address. So we've talked a lot recently about... um, weight discrimination as it relates to bigger bodies, but I want to just fully, you know, shout out elbow, um, tap. I guess you can't call it high five, right? Like, what do you call it when you bump in elbows? Um, isn't it called an elbow bump? There you go. Bump and elbows (laughs) with Sarah and all of our listeners who are striving to prioritize nutrients and health and are trying not to lose weight, right? Like we are, we are inclusive friendly place here for all walks of life. And I know that when you are not feeling well, whether that's nausea or um, stress or a multitude of different things, not sleeping, those are all going to impact your health as well. So I know Sarah's going to kind of get into that. But I, I just kind of wanted to pull out the things in Sarah's question that I feel like a lot of people could relate to, not just in her particular circumstance. Yeah, I think this is, you know, on on the autoimmune protocol, I think we we see these two extremes, right, of um, autoimmune diseases that are driving weight gain, which can be very, very frustrating when it's something underlying physiologically that is making it really hard to to lose weight, um, which, of course, we've, we've talked about on the show recently about these types of underlying health conditions that can drive weight gain, where weight gain is now a symptom, right? It is a symptom of an underlying health condition rather than a symptom of health behaviors. And on the other side of the, the whole pendulum swing on the other side is weight loss that is driven by autoimmune disease that makes it really kind of, it's actually scarier to be underweight um, with autoimmune disease because it, it is a more dangerous position to be in physiologically. And that drive to try to normalize weight and, and put on weight to be healthier, it's actually really important. And so we see this a lot with autoimmune disease, these sort of two two different extremes driven by autoimmune disease and often driven by thyroid disease. And that's kind of where I wanted to start in answering Sarah's question because she gave us some more information that I'm not going to go into in detail, but it sounds to me as not a medical professional and not, uh, you know, qualified to give a diagnosis. Um, but it does sound like what she's going through sounds very much like Graves disease. Um, and I think it's definitely, uh, important, um, aspect of healing is to work with a doctor and get a proper diagnosis because that is going to give Sarah some additional action steps on top of diet and lifestyle. There are many things that cannot be fixed with diet and lifestyle, and that's where the autoimmune protocol is a complementary approach. It is not a substitute for a doctor. It's not a substitute for medications, treatments, surgeries, supplements that are um, – 
called for based on your particular health situation. And I think it's also really important, not just for Sarah, but for our listeners in general, to not fall down that rabbit hole of wanting to self-diagnose. There are plenty of people who opt to follow the AIP before they get a diagnosis. And that's typically either because they're in the early stages of their diseases, they know something runs in their families, and they basically want to take action now to prevent those autoimmune diseases from developing further. Or on the other side, they've gone from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist for years without answers. And they know that whatever's going on, they're unlikely to get that definitive diagnosis. That's actually unfortunately, quite common in autoimmune disease as well, because there's no one test that will tell you if you have autoimmune disease. Most autoimmune diseases are diagnosed based on a pattern of symptoms. So they're really challenging to get a definitive diagnosis until the disease basically has advanced enough that that pattern of symptoms is really clear. So in that context, there are plenty of people who follow the AIP without that diagnosis. But at the same time, that it shouldn't be used as a, um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take control of this myself. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fire my doctor. I'm, I'm never going to go to to my doctor again. Understanding, of course, that, you know, autoimmune disease does tend to go unrecognized um, for, for a long time. Uh, those of us with autoimmune disease tend to have very frustrating experiences with conventional medicine, especially women. Um, especially overweight women, right? Because we get this intersection of all of the different uh, stigmatizing situations in in medicine. And so um, recognizing all of those things, um, the AIP is really powerful, but it is not a substitute for, um, it's a, for everything that your doctor could do, right? It's a complementary approach. And ideally, it can mean, you know, eliminating the need for, um, or reducing the need for disease-modifying drugs like methotrexate or, or prednisone, again, working with your doctor in conjunction with your doctor under medical supervision. Um, but when we're talking about things like endocrine organs, it's important to know that um, there can be continuing need for, for medications. Um, there can be especially continuing need for hormone replacement medications. You wouldn't expect someone with type 1 diabetes to follow the AIP and then be able to stop using insulin because there's just too much damage to the pancreas, right? Um, I take thyroid hormone replacement with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. That doesn't mean I did an AIP hard enough. It means that autoimmune disease um, that's the immune system attacking proteins in our body, causing damage to cells and tissues that eventually reduces the function of an organ. And that damage isn't necessarily reversible. And often, oftentimes it's not. So I, I want to sort of set this conversation a little bit, um, around the idea that AIP is very, very powerful, um, and, but it's not the only thing, right? So often taking a medication can actually help, and sometimes this is includes disease-modifying drugs, can actually help to regulate a system in the human body that is really out of whack so that our bodies can then fully respond to diet and lifestyle choices. Um, so I, I want to sort of mention all that. And then also suggest to Sarah, if it's not a, an autoimmune disease that's necessarily behind the symptoms she's experiencing, there are other underlying health conditions that can um, be behind sort of symptoms like what she's going through. 
maybe on top of autoimmune disease, but maybe not. Um, things like persistent infection, HPA axis dysfunction, also called adrenal fatigue. Um, those things are also worth investigating. And those would typically be the realm of like a functional medicine practitioner or an integrative medicine practitioner, which we did go into a deep dive into the, the difference between those specialties in episode 338. Um, so that's also sort of helpful to, to note. So I just, I want to encourage Sarah first and foremost to work with uh, a healthcare team to, to dig deeper and try to figure out what's going on. Because if it is something like Graves' disease, treatment might really be essential in addition to diet and lifestyle choices. I'm glad you kind of reiterated all that stuff because we are not medical professionals. And I myself am going through this journey right now to try to find someone to to dig deep into um, all of that information for myself. And I, I will say having gone through it and the amount of time that I've spent researching doctors and, you know, talking to people and getting tests run, I know it is difficult and frustrating and doesn't help that stress, but it is so worth it to be able to find someone who can help you piece together all parts of that puzzle. And diet and lifestyle are pieces of the puzzle, but working with a medical professional on medicine you might need or understanding something about the way that your body is trying to communicate to you that you might not understand is important. So um, I do think though that there are parts to Sarah's question that we can answer that aren't necessarily specific to medical professionals. So one of the first things that I'll ask you, Sarah, is um, you, Sarah Bellantine, Dr. Sarah Bellantine, is this idea of low carb and AIP, because this gets construed all the time. So I'm wondering if you could kind of remind everyone on what the science, when we give information about AIP um, having shown health improvements and all of that kind of stuff that you've shown, were carbs ever measured or a part of that at all? (laughs) They were not. Uh, The AIP is often misconstrued as a low-carb diet. Um, and I think that comes out of its origins um, within the, the paleo community and the paleo diet being often misconstrued at a, as a low carb diet. And so I think, you know, one of the things that sort of often when we see this list of foods to eliminate and we see things like grains being eliminated, that is a common carbohydrate source in the typical Western diet. And so the thought is automatically, oh, okay, I'm going low carb. Um, And white potatoes, yeah. And white potatoes, yeah. So uh, the AIP is not a low-carbohydrate diet. Um, The idea behind AIP is balanced macronutrients. There's a fairly wide range and a lot of wiggle room that falls under that term balanced. But basically an ideal macronutrient distribution would be like 20 to 35% calories from fat, 20 to 35% calories from protein, and 30 to 60% calories from carbohydrates. So there's actually a ton of wiggle room in there and really carbohydrate intake. The reason why we don't want to go too low is because it the foods that are the most important foods for our gut microbiome, including some types of starch, um, are 
really important, right? And it's basically impossible to get enough to support a healthy gut microbiome on top of all the important vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients that those foods have going below like 30 to 40% calories from carbohydrates. So that includes things like you know, sweet potato, cassava, green plantain, right? Root vegetables in general, winter squash, um, fruit. Uh, those things are not limited on on the AIP, with the exception of wanting to keep total fructose consumption under about 45 grams per day, and that's just because of the sort of inflammatory processes that can be triggered by high fructose consumption. That's pretty easy to do with vegetables and like three to five servings of fruit a day. That's actually quite a lot of fruit. So the AIP is, you know, definitely not a low carb diet. Um, there's other common misconceptions of the AIP um, that we discussed in detail in episode 377, including going into detail on AIP not being low carb. And I've written about this also on my website. We can put a link to that article in the show notes. But in general, in order to achieve micronutrient sufficiency, right, AIP is a nutrivore diet, um, micronutrient sufficiency kind of requires balanced macros. As soon as macros get too skewed, either going too low carb, too low fat, or too low protein, or too high of any of those things, it starts to become really, really challenging to hit nutrient sufficiency. This episode is sponsored by Third Love. Third Love creates high-quality underwear, sleep, and loungewear, delivering life-changing comfort your body loves being in. With cup sizes from AA through I, including exclusive half cups, and lounge and sleepwear in sizes extra small to 3X, get ready to feel good. I do love an inclusive, well-fitted bra, and I know I feel good when I have one on. It makes all the difference when it comes to comfort and confidence. Stacy, I remember the first time I was fitted for a bra. I was 17 and was mortified to learn that the only way to get fitted for a bra in person was actually, you know, in person. It was so embarrassing, probably the most embarrassing that had ever happened to me at the time. I might have also had a similar situation, but that's why I love Third Love's fitting room. I'm using quotation marks when I say that. It's an online quiz that's so cool. It's interactive and focuses on size, breast shape, current fit issues, and your personal style so that you can get bras and underwear that are perfect for you. I wish that it existed when I was a teenager. Yes. And not only has the fitting room quiz helped 18 million women find their true bra size, Third Love also stands behind all of their products with the perfect fit promise. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free. We also love that Third Love gives back by partnering with organizations in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the United States. Third Love is the largest donor of undergarments in the U.S. and has donated over $40 million in products to help women make powerful life changes. Third Love knows you deserve to feel comfortable and confident 24-7. So right now they're offering you, our listeners, 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash wholeview now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash wholeview for 20% off today.
Okay, I love that we kind of revisited this idea of AIP is not low carb. I personally am obsessed with roasted root vegetables. So I'm all in on this. And I know that when I was lactating and when I was working with women who were lactating, um, getting solid carbohydrate was super important, not just to not lose weight, but because you need a sustained energy source to fuel you're making of food. Like you become a human who is providing nutrients for another. And um, that focus on making sure that you're nutrient sufficient is critical because if not, those nutrients will be depleted from your body to prioritize it to the newborn. So for lactating mothers in particular, it's essential to focus on nutrient density. And I think this is what is really special about AIP. And I wonder if you can kind of go into the science a little bit on why or what you think about AIP during lactation. I I already know what you're going to think, but I'll let our listeners come to that conclusion. (laughs) Um, But I think even more so how it's not just about avoiding a bunch of foods. This, If this is the situation, how critical it is that then AIP becomes this mindset of adding nutrients, right? Like this is so, so critical during that period, whether or not you're AIP. I I completely agree. So the short answer is AIP can absolutely be followed during lactation. It is one of the most nutrient dense dietary protocols out there, but I think it's helpful to Think of the AIP in terms of the flexibility and in order to sort of figure out if you're a person who has that flexibility during pregnancy or lactation, I think it's very helpful to recognize that there's a really complex interplay between sex and fertility hormones and autoimmune disease. And depending on how those are driving your particular disease, um, I think it's helpful to kind of look at the nutrients that are required during lactation. I mean, our need for basically every nutrient goes up during lactation, but there are certain ones that we are much more likely to fall short on because we already tend to fall short on them. And then when you have that increased need during lactation, there's an even bigger sort of disparity between how much we're getting and how much ideally our body actually needs. So we're going to go through that and kind of go through those nutrients and AIP food sources, but then also let's talk about this, uh, interplay between our hormones and autoimmune disease activity so that we can kind of identify some, what would be either reintroduction foods or wiggle room foods that if you fall under the the category of somebody who is experiencing reduced disease activity during pregnancy and lactation, those might be some good foods to help support the nutrient requirements of lactation. Um, And also, right, in the context of Sarah's question, right, all of these different foods, especially when we're talking about carbohydrate sources, are going to help keep those carbohydrates up so that Sarah's not losing weight that she doesn't have to lose. So the, the, relationship between sex hormones and autoimmune disease is really only partially understood in the scientific literature. Um, And what researchers know is that some autoimmune diseases um, tend to be driven by those hormones. So for example, there are certain ones that are more likely to manifest during puberty. Um, So those include schizophrenia, which is a suspected autoimmune disease. It's not confirmed yet type 1 diabetes, nephritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and still disease. 
Others, uh, for example, Addison's disease, celiac disease, and Crohn's disease can actually delay puberty. Um, there are certain um, autoimmune diseases that will actually cycle in intensity throughout a woman's monthly cycle. So that includes autoimmune progesterone dermatitis, lupus, and rheumatoid arthritis can all have that sort of cycle with sex hormones. Um, there are some autoimmune diseases that are known to get better with menopause, for example, lupus. There are um, autoimmune diseases that uh, are linked to fertility challenges, for example, autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, fertility treatments are actually linked to multiple sclerosis. Oral contraceptive use increases the risk of developing Crohn's disease and lupus, but it decreases the risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. So there's just this really complex relationship between autoimmune disease and, and sex hormones. And what happens during pregnancy, and sometimes also the use of oral contraceptives, is some autoimmune diseases may go into remission or the symptom severity may subside and others may flare. Um, in the case of autoimmune diseases that flare with oral contraceptive use, um, discontinuing oral, contraceptive, oral contraceptives will typically um, reduce the, the disease severity, but that can actually take, sometimes it can take up to a couple of years. Um, so that's another really interesting interplay between these hormones and how the immune system is functioning. And part of that is because our immune systems go through a pretty big shift in pregnancy so that the, the body and the fetus are being protected, but the fetus is not being attacked by the maternal immune system. So it's important to understand that women who have autoimmune diseases that go into remission during pregnancy will very often suffer a flare either upon birth of the baby, typically within a few weeks postpartum when those hormones in the immune system start to shift, or if they don't at that time, it may be upon weaning when there's another hormone shift. I actually experienced a remission of Hashimoto's thyroiditis during um, my pregnancies, uh, especially my second. And um, I had basically like a, a little step up in symptoms Every uh, time, uh, especially my second daughter, went down a, a time nursing during the day. So when she went from, you know, eight down to seven, there was a little bit more symptoms. From seven down to six, there was a little bit more symptoms, right? And then um, the worst flare was when she weaned herself completely just before she turned two. Um, so that's very common. And on the flip side, women who have flares during pregnancy, because there are some autoimmune diseases that will flare during pregnancy, will often see a reduction in their symptoms postpartum and or upon weaning. And it can either sort of be stepwise or it can be pretty much like baby is born, everything reverts back to normal and everything in between. I think it was helpful for me to kind of understand, um, and I wish I'd gotten this sooner, right? But like your body as a woman who is pregnant when you have an autoimmune disease can actually interpret that child as an attack on you and your body. And so it's like for me to kind of understand 
uh, my body is understanding that this thing is taking resources that are limited to begin with and therefore reacting in unusual ways, not to mention, like you said, all the hormone changes and different things that go into that and how um, that affected the flares. I also had a huge flare at the end of nursing my third child. And it was when I was extremely low carb for weight loss. Like I was skipping meals for the purpose of skipping meals and pretending it was intermittent fasting because I wanted to hit a certain weight goal by my 30th birthday. And I remember not eating enough. And what I was eating, I wasn't properly absorbing nutrition with digestion. And then my son weaned and like the world came crashing down. I've, I've never experienced anything like that crash. And um, I just want to really encourage people to focus on not worrying so much about what you're body looks like when you're nursing and trying to get back. I'm using quotation marks when I say that. You're never going to get back your old body. You are now a mother whose ligaments and bones and everything all shifted. And now what you have to show for it is human life that you've created. And that's amazing. And this concept that people have just infuriates me. But nevertheless, I think that during that time period, we can often get beyond just, you know, Sarah's question in particular, lost in this idea of really trying to lose weight and not thinking about my number one job right now is creating food for this human. And that means that I need to prioritize my own health because if not, calcium will literally be taken from my bones and my teeth and given to this child. Um, And if we don't really stop to think about those things, how much that will affect our health. So I, I know calcium isn't the only one, but um, my mother-in-law had a saying, or was it, you say it all the time too? A tooth, my mom a tooth, used to say it. A tooth for every child. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Clearly, clearly that's a saying that goes way back in, in probably multiple Anglo-Saxon <laughs> cultures. She's from um, Massachusetts. So maybe it's, you know, just that Northern Ridge, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I think that's spot on that I think it's very, it's very easy to, as we've talked about in the show recently, to sort of get sucked into that diet culture part of where our priorities, you know, lie. And I think it's really helpful to really think about our choices as being, producing the food that are, are, is helping our baby grow, right. Or producing our, you know, helping our baby grow in utero before they're born and how that really needs to be the priority. And, um, and I think as we get into the nutrients, we'll also see where it's not just about eating enough, right. It's about choosing those foods that, that really support pregnancy and lactation, because a lot of these, these nutrients actually cross over both of those phases. So one of the things that I kind of want to emphasize though, is if you are a woman who is, um, flaring upon birth. So, you know, that's not one thing that we don't know that about Sarah, right? We don't know if her autoimmune disease is flaring now that her child's been born and she's, um, breastfeeding her child, or 
if it's flared during pregnancy and it's starting to come, you know, come down. So we don't know that. Um, but basically I would say if you are lactating and enjoying, uh, some symptoms being still sort of suppressed compared to what they were before your pregnancy, then you're a person who can enjoy a little bit more flexibility. So think of it as like AIP plus, um, think of it as sort of skipping over some of the methodical nature of reintroductions, or maybe you sort of rushing through some reintroductions to introduce some foods that can be really important sources of nutrients for lactation. Um, and then as you get closer to weaning, you may want to pull those foods back, go a little bit more full elimination phase AIP, and then do some methodical reintroductions to really test. And the reason why we have that flexibility is because the immune system is basically better regulated. The way your immune system is interfacing with your hormones and everything else that you're doing is basically regulating your immune system better so you don't have as much autoimmune disease activity through lactation. Um, and the same is true for people who have uh, a lower, maybe their disease is going to remission during pregnancy, then you might have that flexibility during pregnancy and you lose that flexibility postpartum. So reflect of where you are in terms of your autoimmune disease symptoms. What is your doctor telling you in terms of, you know, what your, however you track your autoimmune disease, what does your, um, you know, thyroid antibody numbers look like compared to what they looked like before. And that should give you a sense of, are you in a, a, period of time where you need to do elimination phase and go through reintroductions methodically, which would be sort of the standard approach to the AIP, or are you in a phase where you can kind of almost do it in reverse? So think of it as, uh, you know, cutting out the, the worst offenders in terms of, of driving autoimmune disease, right? Like things like gluten, dairy, um, especially A1 conventional dairy, um, soy, for example, right? Cutting out those things. Um, and then focusing on nutrient density, focusing on the lifestyle as much as you can with a new baby. And then you can even do your elimination sort of step-by-step step and kind of move towards the AIP as you need to, as, as your baby weans. Um, it's sort of a, it's not as an efficient a process if you weren't, if, if you were going to just do that for like a non-lactating person. Um, so for, a non-pregnant or lactating person who is wanting to do the AIP to do the sort of stepwise eliminations is just a slower process. There's still compelling reasons for some people to do that because it can be a more gentle transition for people who have a really hard time with just how much change there is uh, from previous uh, diet that there can be with the AIP. Um, but in the context of lactation, if you think that you have that flexibility because your hormones are still suppressing your autoimmune disease activity, then you can almost think of it as, as sort of a, a stepwise elimination. And you can take foods out at, at one at a time if you think they're still causing you problems. So it's just a different way to approach the autoimmune protocol and the elimination phase of it. So let's go through all of these nutrients that are super important for lactation and what elimination phase AIP foods you can eat to get those nutrients versus what AIP plus or AIP plus flexibility foods can, can support you. I like this. And I just want to warn everyone that Sarah pretends like we're just going to go through this like list of things as though it's going to be quick. And I guarantee you that won't be the case. <laughs> 
I love that this podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley. We talked about the health benefits of collagen so many times on this show. We even dedicated the entire episode 430 to the science of collagen. But to summarize, 30% of all of our proteins are collagen and it's our main structural protein. So without it, we'd be like one of those inflatable tube men? Uh, yeah, but without the sick dance moves. Come on. I don't know. I have some pretty sick dance moves. <laughs> but that's because you have collagen because it's essential for bone, cartilage, ligaments, tendons, teeth, connective tissue, skin, muscles, blood vessels, even our corneas. I know the big lesson that I learned in one of our many episodes about collagen, but in particular, um, is that it can decrease and degrade from aging, chronic inflammation, chronic stress, nutritional deficiencies, UV, radiation exposure, basically all the things that we're all experiencing as we <laughs> move through life. <laughs> it's true. But the great news is that studies also show that supplementing with 10 to 20 grams of collagen every day can combat all those effects and improve skin health, invisible signs of aging, speed up wound healing, improve joint health, increase bone mineral density, and increase muscle mass. And of course, we're super picky about which collagen supplement we use because most are made through an industrial process that often uses chemicals and harsh solvents. So that's why we both use and love Paleo Valley 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. Like the name implies, it's made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides and antibiotics, which are slow simmered in filtered water and nothing else. And Paleo Valley does third-party testing to guarantee that you're getting clean, healthy product. It also has almost no flavor and dissolves really easily, so it's super versatile. I put a big scoop into my coffee every morning. And I personally put it in my blender. And I will say, I now use like a blender bottle for my smoothies, not even like a real blender, and it still dissipates. So you can add it to just about anything. Recipes, hot water, you just put it in a mug with some salt and make mm -hmm. your own little sipping broth. Our listeners can head to paleovalley.com and enter code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. And don't forget to check out Paleo Valley's other fantastic products like their grass-fed organ complex and their food-based essential seed complex. Okay, I know we told Sarah that she can still have carbohydrates on AIP. Mm -hmm. I mentioned root vegetables as being some of my favorites. Um, that would be sweet potatoes and butternut squash. And then I often like mix those with other vegetables. I love roasted broccoli. Um, but just in general, I'll onions, you know, make like a huge tray of roasted vegetables and then add those to my meals throughout the week. Um, do you want to list off some of the other AIP friendly carbs? Yeah, I think the, the densest uh, carbohydrate sources are those really starchy root vegetables. So things like cassava, sweet potato, which you just mentioned, parsnip, uh, taro root would be very, a very nutrient dense and also carbohydrate dense root vegetable. Um, things like lotus root or boniato, right? All the different sort of sweet potato family. And then other root vegetables like beets, carrots, um, even rutabaga and turnips, um, jicama aren't that dense in terms of in terms of their carbohydrates. They're sort of medium in between a 
super carb dense root vegetable and a non starchy vegetable like broccoli. Um, winter squash also kind of has its a range. So um, acorn, the acorn family are some of the starchiest ones. Um, things like kabocha are in there, very, very starchy. And then delicata, butternut squash, um, summer squash especially would be in that less starchy category. And then some of these are, I mean, squash are technically fruit, but I tend to just talk about culinary vegetables instead of, um, instead of like the botany vegetables, just because I think it's more straightforward. Um, so green plantain though, I don't know where to put that. It's really a fruit because it looks like a banana, but it's super, super starchy. So that also is a great, great source of uh, starchy carbohydrates on the AIP. And then fruit. I mean, fruit is tends to be uh, more sort of sugars, but they tend to have a lot of fiber. So they're slow burning sugars. They tend to have a pretty low um, glycemic index and they're packed with nutrients, phytonutrients that are really special. Um, there's, there's just tons of health benefits to eating fruit. I am definitely not a, uh, avoid fruit person. I don't think the science supports that. So there's, there's lots of great sources of strict elimination phase AIP carbs, but if you are a person who has that flexibility, Rice is a great choice. It's also, right, it's affordable. It's easy. You can make it with broth and increase the nutrient value that way. We talked about gluten-free oats in episode 461. Um, also, there's some legumes that are really great for the microbiome. So if you're not super sure on how you do with legumes, the ones that are the best for the gut microbiome, I think they get priority. So that would be lentils, chickpeas, and split peas. I can think Sarah had mentioned she eats nuts and avocado for additional calories. There are so many awesome food options now that there were when Sarah and I did this years and years ago. I would highly encourage you to get like a bag of plantain chips that are made mm -hmm. with um, uh, like olive oil or, you know, coconut oil, like quality oil, and then make your own guacamole with onions and garlic um, and mashed avocados and go to town, man. Could just enjoy that. And then also from the cassava perspective, there are so many options, including making your own stuff with cassava flour. Um, there are brands like Legit that make um, AIP friendly mixes of things that you can make yourself with cassava flour. And then there is also a brand of pasta, Jovial Noodles. I don't know if there's others, um, but I know Jovial makes cassava noodles that are really better than they should be considering cassava is <laughs> the only ingredient. I know from before there were cassava noodles, we also really liked um, sweet potato noodles. You can get them online or at the Asian food market, but they're made with just sweet potato starch and that's it. And so all of those things would be included and are all very starchy, almost entirely starch. Yeah. <laughs> so lactation also, it increases the need for carbohydrates, which I think you, you already mentioned. Um, it also increases the need for protein. So AIP proteins are all the same proteins. So there, there's actually no, no need for, uh, an a flexibility food list here. So fish, shellfish, red meat, poultry, organ meat, and bone broth are all going to be the best sources of protein. We've also covered on the show before why plant protein 
just doesn't really count. Um, there's other benefits to some kind of plant proteins, especially things like split peas. Um, the, the protein in lentils, for example, are one of the reasons why those legumes are good for the gut microbiome. But in terms of meeting our protein needs, animal protein is, is, is really where it's at. And I will add, if you're having a difficult time retaining weight, you might be having a difficult time retaining nutrients. Um, this is like a common thing that we see with someone for celiac, for example, right? Like their body is just not absorbing. So the reason that Sarah lists fish first is because that is the highest absorbable protein by your body. It is the most kind of bioavailable. If you have a difficult time like digesting red meat, for example, make yourself like a pot roast or a stew and kind of pre-digest it that way. And that way you're getting the benefits of broth as well as the protein itself, which can kind of double up there. For sure. Um, you also already mentioned calcium, Stacey. Um, so calcium... It's like I know a thing or two about this. <laughs> yep, I'm going to say 100%. Uh, you definitely do. Um Calcium, I will say up front, when I teach the AIP lecture series, we do an activity in the first week that sort of falls into the second week where we do a, a three-day food journal tracking micronutrients. And then we do an analysis where we look at what are the nutrients that um, the students sort of were, fell short of. And like then they go and identify what foods they can eat more of to meet those shortfalls. And calcium is the nutrient that comes up the most often on the AIP as a, as a shortfall nutrient. And that's because, you know, our best, you know, the most, actually the densest source of calcium is dairy products. Um, and then other good sources of calcium are like nuts and seeds, which are also eliminated in the elimination phase of the AIP. So foods that are going to be a great source of calcium that are AIP, the, the best source is actually going to be canned fish where you eat the bones. So like canned salmon with the bones, canned sardines. Um, that's going to be the, the top source. Then um, molasses is actually a really good source. So blackstrap molasses has 20% of your daily value of calcium per tablespoon. It actually has more calcium per calorie than cheese and more iron per calorie than steak. So it's, uh, I think, a superfood and plus um, delicious. Um, it's actually really good. Stacey, have you ever had it in like coffee with a little bit of cinnamon? It makes your coffee like a ginger spice. In the in the holiday season, yeah. I, I do things like that. Yeah. Um, so molasses, I think is a, is a great, almost like a supplement. Um, and another sort of sub food based supplement is to add mineral drops to water. So, um, just have a look at the, the label. A lot of mineral drops have gross flavors in it. So definitely look for one that doesn't have flavors. Um, there's a couple of, of brands that I like. I like the, the Waterman's and, uh, EM drops. Um, and they're, they're, the Waterman's is made from like, Utah sea salt. Um, so it's got lots of trace minerals as well. And then food, other like whole foods to focus on dark leafy greens, especially like kale can have quite a lot of calcium, especially the curly kale, uh, scotch kale. Um, seaweed can be pretty high in calcium. 
uh, chives, radishes, beef can have a bit of calcium, mushrooms, oranges, kiwi. Um, so there are a few other foods that can be good sources of calcium, but calcium is definitely something to track. And then if you are enjoying the flexibility, we already mentioned dairy, I would definitely stick with grass-fed A2 dairy, um, as well as fermented soy can be a good source of calcium. So that would be things like tofu, um, but also like natto, like the, the super fermented. And a lot of people will do better with fermented soy than non-fermented because it breaks down a lot of the problematic proteins. And then nuts and seeds, sesame seeds and chia seeds are particularly good sources of calcium. I know that you said that canned fish with bones is number one and 98% of listeners made an audible gross noise when you said that. So I want to really? offer... That many? Yeah. I love canned fish with the bones. I always think it's like such a shame to see it like the boneless, skinless. I'm like, why? The bones are my favorite part. I used to, when I was a kid, we would I would make canned salmon for everybody and I would literally like pull it apart and like grab the spine and then just eat it and then not share it with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 98%. So mm-hmm. I want to offer that these bones are pretty soft. It's also less expensive to buy this way. And if you have a food processor or a high high speed blender, say that three times fast, you can make like kind of like fish balls or fish patties and, you know, pan sear them with some olive oil and make yourself a little sauce with chives because who knew those were high in calcium. Um, And it, you won't like, taste the bones that way you don't need to be like Sarah with her weirdness and just like eating spines uh, I do I just, it's honestly it's like my, one of my favorite things <laughs> I but then also, again I am the person who just eats a head of lettuce I know I was gonna you anyway um I also <laughs> want to mention that almost all of us are filtering our water right we've we did a show on this we've talked about this a lot no matter what you're using to filter your water adding mineral drops back, whether you're on AIP or you're um, lactating or not, like you need to add back the minerals that we're filtering out of our waters. I myself am like obsessed with mineral water. I find that it is really quenching and um, almost like an electrolyte sort of way. And I Mm -hmm. think that it's because my body is so desperate for those nutrients that it literally like feels like I'm drinking a Gatorade after I just ran a marathon sometimes, right? Like it's just so quenching. And so I highly, highly recommend, um, you can buy mineral water or you can just buy like what Sarah was talking about are drops that you put into your own, uh, cups or bottles of water that you make at home. And so if you're filtering your water at all, I would highly recommend this. They're usually like under 10 bottle, under $10 for a bottle that will last you like more than three months. Like it's, yeah. it's super affordable. And I agree. I actually, it improves the taste of water. So when you filter water, it can kind of taste uh, flat almost like it's sort of a weird, like there's something wrong with it. Adding those minerals back really improves the flavor. And I also, Stacy, completely crave mineral water. Like I'll just have times where like that is the only thing that I want. So um, definitely a great way to make use of something that's otherwise like pure hydration. Doesn't add 
calories, it just adds nutrients. So kind of makes water a superfood if you think of it that way. Your list of superfoods is longer than a CVS receipt. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> Mushrooms, molasses. Uh-huh. Yep. And I just added uh, mineral enhanced water to that. Uh, so the next nutrient that we need more of uh, during lactation, but that we're also very likely to fall short of because most people fall short of zinc uh, in norm- normal times, not even lactating times. Uh, so zinc is the like the richest sources are basically like shellfish, especially mollusks. So oysters are the number one food source of zinc, um, but other you know clams, mussels are also pretty good. Organ meat in general, especially liver, is pretty good. Um, Other types of seafood, crab, lobster, red meat in general. Wild game will have more zinc than than farmed red meat, but all is pretty good. Other kinds of organ meat. And then mushrooms and seaweed also have a good amount of zinc. So there are some, some plant sources there as well. But generally, we get a lot more zinc from animal foods than from plant foods. This is where I pitch liver pills. Uh... Paleo Valley's organ complex that has not just liver, but multiple organ um, is dehydrated and put in a pill form for you. So it's like a synergistic food source that you're getting, not just zinc, but um, we're also going to talk about B vitamins as being really important. Um, you'll get that there. So it's my, it's my little pitch for you if you're not ready to just make your own liver burgers, which Sarah is about to tell you how much she and her family love. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's a superfood, Stacey. Yep. I was waiting for that, too. <laughs> check. Check. Um, so the cool thing about that list is those were all AIP foods. There's not really anything non-AIP that you could add that would be super rich in zinc. So um, that's that's a really cool one there, I think. I think whenever you can say all the AIP foods are the best source of this nutrient, then I feel like that's really powerful. Um, the next nutrient is magnesium. We did an entire episode on magnesium, episode 409. Um, but the top AIP food, uh, sources of magnesium are going to be basically any dark green vegetable, seaweed, um, things like chives. Chives, again, make that list. Uh, fish is very high in magnesium and avocados are very high in magnesium. So Sarah's got got that set already. And then our flexibility foods would be nuts and seeds, especially pumpkin seeds because they they hit the green plus the nut and seed. Brazil nuts, sunflower seeds, but basically like all nuts and seeds are going to be good. And then soy products also could be a good source of magnesium, especially green soy products. So like edamame. Again, that's going to be if, if you're going to tolerate um, soy, that's one of the more likely culprits um, because soy intolerance is so common in autoimmune disease. Aren't Brazil nuts really high in selenium? selenium. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think it's like a palmful has like a thousand percent of your selenium. It's, it's, they're, they're really, really amazing. And it's one of, it's one of those special nutrients where you don't have to have it like regularly. Like you could have like three Brazil nuts a month or something and, be good, right? Uh, yeah, I, I actually tried, I do a palmful of Brazil nuts once or twice a week. They're one of my like go-to, I try to do a palmful of nuts or seeds every, every day. So that's like one of my 
my check boxes in my guess what superfoods um, is a palmful of nuts or seeds and Brazil nuts. I just I also love them, so they're one of my my go tos. I try to have them yeah once or twice a week. Um, so the nice, other nice thing about selenium is um, there's there's not you're not going to like if you ate Brazil nuts every single day you're not going to hit a toxic level of selenium. So that's that's another nice piece about that. You can kind of space them out and just have it every once in a while. And then you can also eat a lot more than um, what your RDA is and still be fine. Okay, moving on to the area in which I myself am working on nutrient sufficiency because I recently have done some testing and found out that I needed to improve it and then I overshot. (laughs) But um, so B vitamins in general, I think women who are pregnant hear a lot about because folate and folic acid are something that most doctors will talk about. But B vitamins are broken down into multiple different families. And I know we're going to address them individually. Um, I think that one of the reasons that I obsessively love onions, like I cannot get enough onions. Last night, Matt was making dinner and he chopped one onion up. He was making a stir fry. And I was like, yeah, you're going to need to put another onion. in (laughs) The onion ratio is way too low. Um, I think one of the reasons that I personally love it is because my body knows that it's it's got nutrients that I need, but what are some other B six um, vitamins in particular? And maybe you could walk us through like the different kinds of B vitamins. Yeah, so B vitamins basically they most of them have numbers. So B one, B two, B three, B five, B six, B seven, B nine, and B twelve. Um, there are a lot of nutrients that used to be categorized as B vitamins that later got decategorized. So they got like kicked out of the B vitamin family. Um, and B6 is one of the ones that's really important for uh, metabolism, basically. So um, B6, B9, and B12 are especially important for uh, all the B vitamins are used in metabolism. They're all used in the Krebs cycle, but B6, B9, and B12 are especially important for methylation. So people with MTHFR gene variants like you, Stacey, um, can, can need more, especially active forms of these vitamins, which we do are getting some active methylated forms from whole foods, um, in order to support the, the methylation cycle in the context of, for example, MTHFR that is not up to a hundred percent. Um, so a lot of those gene variants will reduce the basically efficacy of MTHFR a little bit, you know, some anywhere between like five to 20% typically, unless you've piling on all of the various SNPs that reduce um, efficacy. And then you probably know it because you probably have elevated homocysteine and you're probably already working with a doctor to, to work on that. Um, so other than onion family for, for B6, liver, again, I mean, red meat or meat in general is a pretty good source. Organ meat's going to be higher. Uh, fish is very, very high source of B6. Um, all of the onion family and dark leafy greens in general are, are all great sources of B6. And then if you have more flexibility, um, peppers, sweet peppers, for example, are a really good source, sunflower seeds and pistachios. I love all those things. Um, for those people who are maybe looking for additional, um, those peppers are one of the things that I think are most commonly difficult for people with AIP. Like, Mm -hmm. I know we talked about this, this idea of flexibility and adding things that are 
nutrient rich early on. I think like egg yolks, for example, is one that most people find um, they do okay with versus uh, nightshades, which the pepper family are in is usually one of the last ones for people. So just FYI, if, uh, if, if adding back in, maybe just be aware that that that's a sticky situation. And um, a lot of people are, are in denial because nightshades are delicious and in everything. And if, uh, if we add things in too early, then we don't see the reduction in symptoms that we're looking for. And then you kind of get stuck forever being a- unable to add back in, which sucks too. So do you want to run through maybe some of the other Bs or? Sure. Let's finish up the Bs. So B1 and B9, which is also folate, are the other two B vitamins that, again, I mean, lactating really does increase our need for all micronutrients. These are just the ones that we're most likely to not get enough of. Um, So B1, also called thiamine, is uh, richly found in pork especially, um, and fish in general, liver sort of in general. Muscles are really high in B1. Acorn squash, but also other other squashes, and asparagus is very high in vitamin B1. Um, If you have some flexibility, legumes are probably one of our best sources other than pork, and that kind of across the board legumes. Um, Nuts and seeds generally very, very high, and those nightshady peppers, again, are also a good source of B1. Okay, you had a lot of B numbers. The one that I think most pregnant nursing moms hear about is folate B9, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. So folate, again, you know, food tends to have a fairly high percentage of the folate and food will be active form uh, L-methylfolate. But we're kind of getting, you know, one of the cool things about, well, pretty much all vitamins is there's multiple forms of them. Um, With the methylated active forms of B vitamins, those are, again, really important for anybody with gene variants that are reducing MTHFR or other methylation enzyme efficacy. It's really important to be able to get that active form. So again, that's going to be super rich in organ meat in general, green and leafy vegetables in general. Um, Beets are really high in folate, asparagus, avocados, papaya, strawberries, and seaweed. And then the flexibility food for B9 is legumes. We love that this episode is sponsored by One Farm. One Farm's goal is to harness the healing power of plants to support our daily lives, including making the highest quality hemp extract on the market. And One Farm is dedicated to sustainably creating plant-based natural remedies with USDA organic fair trade ingredients sourced directly from the people who grow them. We've done a few deep dives on previous episodes about the benefits of CBD, including for pain management and anxiety. Yep. CBD works by modulating our body's endocannabinoid system, which is an important signaling network within our bodies that regulates the interface between pain sensation and the emotional response, including maladaptations like depression and anxiety, as well as the physiological response like inflammatory processes and the stress response. And we choose One Farm because, well they're awesome. Also, I love that One Farm oversees every aspect of production, starting with growing industrial grade hemp on their beautiful USDA organic farm in Colorado in the United States. Then the hemp oil is CO2 extracted and bottled by One Farm's USDA certified lab with every batch 
third-party tested, ensuring an incredible, pure product. They don't use ethanol or any harsh solvents like heptane, hexane, or acetone in their extraction process. Actually, because their hemp extract is so pure, it has no harsh or grassy hemp aftertaste. It's light in color and it never contains any particulates. Actually, unflavored is my preference, but you can also get flavored simply with organic essential oils like peppermint oil and cinnamon. And lemon oil is another tincture that I really like. I also like their soft gels and their turmeric lotion. I have found so much relief from my back pain with using CBD. Honestly, it's I'd, it's like incredible to me how much better it is than pain medication um, for that inflammation and pain that I experience with flares. And I use CBD every single day for anxiety and to support healthier sleep. Again, these are all science-backed benefits of CBD, which we've talked on the show in depth before. And listeners, if you'd like to give it a try, you can get 15% off your order with code WHOLEVIEW at onefarm.com slash thewholeview. That's O-N-E-F-A-R-M dot com slash thewholeview. Other than B vitamins, are there any others we're missing that we didn't kind of go over that are super important for pregnant or lactating women to kind of especially focus on? I think the last one is vitamin E. Um, Again, this is a select list of nutrients for which we are more likely to fall short on. There are lots of great AIP food sources of vitamin E, though. Um, So avocado, like Sarah already enjoys, is definitely one of them. But also leafy greens in general. Um, Other fatty fruit, like olives, uh, like coconut, organ meat, shellfish, and fatty fish are also really great. Winter squash is actually a great source of vitamin E. And then also the unrefined plant oils from those fatty fruit, coconut oil, olive oil, avocado oil, are all good sources of vitamin E as well. And then the flexibility foods for vitamin E are nuts and seeds. This is like my favorite foods list right here. <laughs> like, give me a, a good piece of salmon with some uh, butternut squash roasted in avocado and olive oil and like avocado on the side with some like sauteed spinach and you've just like my little heart is pitter pitter patter Um, plus you just ate all those superfoods right all those superfoods (laughs) face foam Um, and I know like nuts and seeds are also high in those those would be on that like flexibility list um or as Sarah has her her daily allotment of her her nuts and seeds. Now I'm gonna feel like that's something I need to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I told you I'm, I've been making these um, vegetable focused meal plans every week to make sure that I'm getting in my thirty plus variety of. Um, we call it fruits and vegetables, but we also know from the show series that we did that it also included other plant things like nuts and seeds. And I don't even have to include those to hit my 30 each week. So if you're looking for a variety of foods to hit all of these, definitely check out our weekly meal plans. They're not AIP specific, but they're very AIP friendly because I already don't do nightshades. So it's just a matter of things like not including certain spices that might be in a recipe and using a different blend. Um, 
or, you know, sesame seeds or different things like that might be on there that are easy to kind of leave off for AIP. But, oh, goodness, I will say that I've had, I've had a day personally and, um, I mentioned at the top of the show, didn't want to go off on a tangent, but I love kind of getting back to our roots of being nutrient focused because we're not medical professionals. We're not giving, um, nor do we want to, nor can we give medical advice for someone who needs an autoimmune diagnosis and, you know, is nursing. That's a definite delicate situation to work with medical professional, but I I love being reminded of kind of the simple things of the focus on nourishing our bodies for the nutrients that fuel us. I know we made jokes about superfoods, but the reason that we call them that is because they cover so many of what our body needs in such an efficient way that it's it's almost like taking a supplement. I think that's what we're calling these superfoods, right? It's like they're so powerful that your body needs them. And if you can get in, you know, a certain amount of a lot of these different things that we talked about, it's, it's replacing the need for, in our modern day society, what we're replacing with so many supplements, says the woman who like, has a giant thing of supplements that I take every morning. (laughs) But that's because I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking so much about the nutrients that my body needs, both from the food perspective and then measuring and seeing, okay, what is my body not absorbing? Like you said, I have MTHFR. My body does not do well with B vitamins. (laughs) I can just like literally bathe myself in B vitamins and be deficient. So I need to like really prioritize those nutrients and make sure that I'm, I'm getting what I need, you know? For sure. And I think it's it's helpful to also clarify that you and I both gravitate towards food-based supplements. I mean, we've really sort of, we've talked about this on the show before about where supplements can fill holes and where there's uh, where there's sort of the importance of being really selective in terms of what supplements we're taking. So supplements that can address severe deficiencies in result, um, in response to testing, or supplements that are replicating something that's sort of hard to get enough of from the modern food supply. And so that there is a time and a place for supplements. But one of the things that I think I would love to actually to do a really deep dive into the science on, on an upcoming episode, um, there have been some studies that have basically shown that multivitamins do not do what we think they do. So while there's definitely a time and a place for, for supplements, a multivitamin doesn't actually Um, Even if on paper it would show us that we were meeting our nutrient shortfalls, the body still responds as though it's nutrient deficient. And this has actually been shown in studies that um, multivitamins basically don't don't change uh, disease risk the way food-based sources of those nutrients do. Again, which is why we we tend to gravitate towards uh, food-based supplements like uh, Paleo Valley's uh, organ complex, for example, or their essential C complex, um, both food-based sources of those nutrients, like their bone broth, right? Those are, again, sort of food-based supplements that can help to meet a shortfall without the problems of a multivitamin. Um, Again, it's sort of, it's, that's like, I feel like we're opening a can of worms right at the end of an episode. So we really need to think of dedicating a whole episode in, in the future to why a multivitamin 
isn't the same as a nutrient focused diet. Um, and I think part of it too, it, it's not just the, it's not just right. The digestibility, the forms that are in multivitamins that are inferior to the forms that are in foods, but it's also the, the food matrix itself is full of compounds that are nutritive. Um, for example, phytonutrients in fruits and vegetables and mushrooms and nuts and seeds, um, that we don't, really classify as essential nutrients. They're not generally incorporated into multivitamin mixes. And so we're getting so much more when we consume our nutrients from whole foods that we just can't replicate in uh, a capsule in general, uh, with, you know, the exception of the, the food-based nutrients and supplements that I already mentioned. So it's, I think, really helpful to kind of wrap up on a further emphasis of why it's so important to be seeking to get these nutrients from foods. And it's because it really isn't the same to get these nutrients from a supplement. Um, so whole foods, superfoods is definitely where it's at. And less expensive too. Like I will say, you know, you could look at the list, especially if you're looking at the flexibility list and incorporating things like legumes. Um, I, I, personally don't digest them well. I wish we did because I really miss chickpeas. But, um, you know, when you're looking at things like winter squash and organ meat and leafy greens, these are some of the most affordable options for groceries. And so it's just a matter of finding those those recipes that really work for you that incorporate a lot of different things. I know, like I mentioned that big tray of roasted root vegetables. Um, we also make like a large stir fry probably twice a week, at least once a week in our family, right? Where we're incorporating, whether we're making our own kind of fried rice version, or if we're just doing a lot of vegetables, things like, um, egg roll in a bowl, for example, right, where you can put in so many of these different nutrient-rich foods, especially if you're making them with shrimp, for example, right? Like, don't just always lean into chicken, kind of. The question that I always ask myself when I'm looking at a meal plan is like, which of these meals could I substitute shrimp or fish for? Because I'll find a lot of recipes that I like, and almost all of them are red meat or chicken-focused, and like fish recipes are often just really kind of boring, <laughs> but you can just sub really easily for things like casseroles. Um, like, oh gosh, I love me a uh, tuna casserole with peas and um, like cassava noodles, you know, and I think mayonnaise might be the difficult thing to add in there. But if you can do egg yolk, you know, like a lot of these different kinds of things can be affordable. You can batch cook because I know when you're a new mom, like, you know, you don't have a lot of time to just be experimenting in the kitchen. But the more that you can make it kind of feasible for yourself, um, the better, right? Like, Set yourself up for success by creating sustainable habits. Don't do something for a week that you will never be able to do long term and, you know, create all these like unrealistic expectations for yourself. Focus on some of the foods that are repeated on this list, like dark leafy grains and, you know, things like that and say, okay, how can I incorporate this in a way that's natural and, and easily easily replicatable for myself and my family because I think that's the way to kind of create those sustainable habits that will help you get to 
nutrients deficiency and help your body heal, which hopefully then means you can reintroduce more things and go to the state that Sarah and I both want you to be in, which is, you know, not having to stress so much about the food in order for you to be healthy. Because I do think that that is a um, egg chicken and the egg thing, right? Like when we add stress to our autoimmune disorder, like we're just going to see more flares that way. And I think it's important for Sarah to give herself permission to do an imperfect or flexible version of AIP right now and prioritize, um, you know, what she needs to do to be successful lactating, right? Like, that's not just the nutrient-dense foods that we've talked about, but it's also managing stress and trying to do what she can to support better sleep. I realize that's really, really tough with a baby in the house, um, but maybe that means you know have, taking a nap when the baby's napping or going to bed early right when the baby goes down for their long sleep. That was something that was really helpful for me when my kids were really little was, yep, yep, they, they have their six hours. Um, starting at, at, you know, 7 PM. So I'm going to go to bed at 7 PM. It's just temporary. It's what, it's what I do now, but it's how I can get that one long chunk. And then the rest of it is sort of dozing in between their more frequent nursings and the, the sort of latter part of, of the, the night. And so, um, I think it's important to sort of, you know, it's okay to, be adaptable. It's okay to be flexible. It's okay to not be perfect and to just think about what are the priorities right now. And, you know, depending on how severe Sarah's disease activity is, once she can work with, with the doctor and get some more answers, you know, maybe that really does rationalize doing full AIP elimination and then going through methodical reintroductions. But maybe, you know, for right now, it's a better choice to keep stress management as a high priority and embrace some of this flexibility to make sure that she's getting the nutrients she needs in foods that are easy to prepare, that she can cook a giant amount of it that are affordable, um, right? Things like adding legumes and rice can really help stretch a budget. So, you know, there's other value in those foods if they work for you. Um, And I think it's okay to sort of, you know, have a, have a, uh, this is what I'm going to do now. And in six months or in a year, then we're going to see where we're at and we're going to, to revisit. I think it's really helpful to focus on the four most important aspects of the AIP, um, that are, that are outside of eliminations, right? Eliminations is the fifth aspect of the AIP, AIP. but the other four are nutrient density, sleep, stress management, and activity. And often people drive healing with those four, right? The eliminations are about removing barriers to healing. And it is okay to approach the AIP in a way that focuses on the four things that are driving healing and take eliminations in a, in a stepwise fashion. Um, and it's important too for people who are in a phase in their lives, not just Sarah, but in general, where if the eliminations are driving stress, then maybe that's not the right trade right now. I mean, definitely look at eliminating, you know, gluten, dairy, and soy, the the three most likely culprits, and maybe nightshades too. Uh, those 
at least anecdotally, seem to be the foods that are the most common severe lifelong intolerances for people with autoimmune disease. Not that everyone can't eat all of those um, with autoimmune disease, but those just seem to be the most common. But um, but focusing on those those other those other four pillars of the AIP can be a really great entry point when there's a lot of other things going on. Absolutely, all of that. And I also want to mention because we haven't mentioned it. Um, foods that mimic gluten. So the reason that I'm thinking of that is because coffee is one of the things that's eliminated on AIP. And I know that Sarah mentioned sleep and anxiety issues. And I recently talked about how I had removed coffee entirely, not just decaf, like, but just kind of quit and moved on to breakfast. And what an impact that that had on my health, my sleep patterns, and my anxiety. And so if you can, if you're going to simplify, I would group the, um, you have a special name for it, Sarah, the foods that like, um, can act like gluten in your body. Yeah. Gluten cross reactors. There you go. Look at the science name. It's, um, coffee, grains. What, what are the other ones I'm missing? Dairy's in that list. Um, nutritional yeast or, uh, Baker's Brewers yeast is in that list. Um, there's a, I have a, an article, again, we can link to in the show notes that goes through all of the different foods that have been tested as gluten cross-reactors and then also their, their frequency of gluten cross-reactivity. So um, other grains are definitely sort of the, the highest on that list. Um, but there are some other ones that are, um, you know, corn can be on that, soy can be on that. Again, dairy, all dairy. With coffee, I, I believe it's just instant coffee, so it's unclear if that's due to the processing or if it's trace gluten that might be in instant coffee. Um, but those foods, the reason why they're called gluten cross reactors is they have a similar enough protein structure that there's the opportunity, depending on exactly what antibodies we're making against gluten, that those antibodies can also bind to the proteins in those foods. So it basically means that the most likely type of antibodies that we're going to make have a high probability of binding to other proteins in the same way. So they basically also react to these other foods. That's the, hence the word cross reaction. And so our body sees something like dairy, basically identical to gluten. The, the frequency of those kinds of um, cross reactivities sort of range from like 20% likelihood to about 80% likelihood. Um, so we can put again, um, more information in the show notes to, for our listeners who want to explore that in more detail. Sweet. Well, listeners, I want to thank you for making your way to the end of the show. And I hope even if it didn't apply to you that you've gained some knowledge and can share with those people in your life who might benefit and also see how it really does apply so much to all of us. I know all of this nutrient list is helpful for me um, as well. So thank you so much. And we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids ears because our bonus content is explicit. 
You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.